0: This podcast is a proud member of the CypherCast Network. Discover more at cyphercast.net and follow us on Twitter at CypherCastNet.
1: Welcome to Incantations, an Invisible Sun podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Dave. And we will be your guides along the Path of Suns. Today we sing two spells. With Embrace the Black Cube, we discuss Monty Cook's 10th design diary about the Sooth Deck. And then, with the Vislay Tourist Bureau, we recap the Invisible Sun information we learned while at Gen Con 2017. Join us on the Path of Suns, and we may uncover a secret or two.
0: With Embrace the Black Cube, we discuss the Occasional Design Diary blog posts about the design of the Invisible Sun RPG. In this segment, we discuss the 10th Design Diary about the Sooth deck. So we've got a whole bunch of information about the Sooth deck now. Montecook Games has been tweeting out images from the Sooth deck for the past several weeks. Uh, I believe they were actually publishing those uh, before Gen Con even started. And now Monty Cook has put together his tenth design diary, which digs into what the Sooth Deck is and how it's going to be used in the Invisible Sun game. In order to, I guess, ground me into what we're doing here, I'm actually flipping through various Sooth Deck cards. I really like, I really like cards of all sorts. Um, I am a, a former magic player. Uh, I also learned a few magic tricks in order to be a magician at a murder mystery. So handling cards is something that I really enjoy. Handling circular cards is a bit trickier than uh, standard cards. But hey, it's, it's similar enough that uh, the tactile sensation is there and it, it's working for me.
1: Um, so, Scott, do you also have a sooth deck? I just got my sooth deck last week. Uh, the listeners may be interested to know that they're available through the Monty Cook website. And if you, I believe it is still the case that if you pre-order the the Black Cube for the Visible Sun RPG, you will get a free uh, Sooth deck as part of your order. Uh, I don't know how long that offer will be in place, uh, but I believe it is still an active incentive for pre-orders.
0: Yeah, so not only do you get a free Sooth deck there will be a Sooth deck in the Black Cube that you're going to be getting. So you're, I'm going to end up with two Sooth decks, um, and you will too. And anybody else who has picked one up, uh, you're going to get two of these things, which is pretty slick. You're not going to need to use two, but hey, it's it's a it's a pretty deck of cards. All right, so let's let's talk about what this thing is. So what is the Sooth deck? This is. Uh, a deck of 60 divinatory cards and divination is the art of seeking knowledge via supernatural means and the sooth deck shares a lot in common with uh, the tarot deck Uh, i am not super familiar with the tarot deck i know that it has four suits and uh each of the suits has you know an order along with some royal cards so it's very similar to a standard deck of playing cards but Tarot has a whole lot of meaning built into the cards themselves, and Scott, I have a feeling that you would be able to explain tarot a whole lot better than I could.
1: Well, I, I don't want to uh, go into an entire segment on tarot, but the, the, what you have described is is the uh, kind of the basics of the tarot deck and accurate. You've got the equivalent of what we're used to with the uh, suits and royalty cards uh, in a traditional playing card deck. Except in a tarot deck, you also have what are called the major arcana, which are kind of personalities or concepts that are layered on top of that basic set of cards. So you'll have, in addition to something like three of swords, which might be similar to a three of clubs we might think of or something like that in a a traditional playing deck, uh, you'll have... Uh, You know, royalty, you'll you'll have a a king of swords, Uh, but you also have cards like the Wheel of Fortune and the Mage. Uh, And these are individual characters or concepts as part of the Major Arcana. And the sooth deck copies the tarot format in that it combines uh, the uh, kind of the the, the large count of cards um, and some numbered cards uh, with some uh, kind of Major Arcana personality sorts of cards. But it's not quite as simple as the Ace through Ten of Swords. It's not quite that simple for the Sooth deck, but something along those lines. Because the cards will, 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 some of the cards will be numbered. In fact, I think all the cards will be numbered, uh, Mm -hmm. and some of them will have will have particular sort of personalities uh, or refer to core concepts like uh, Nemesis and um, uh, Sovereign and things like that
0: yeah uh, yeah, so they do have uh, royals that are similar to uh, what Tarot has with the major Arcana, but they are tied to directly to a suit. <laughs> um, so uh all right, I, I'm hanging out on to one of these uh, decks right now, uh, and so the deck is a fairly heavy card stock, and it's um much stiffer than a, a plain card 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 stock., uh, so this is not a deck that you're probably gonna be riffle shuffling. Uh, I mean, if you riffle shuffle this thing, uh, I don't know, it's not going to hold up to that for too long uh, because it is fairly stiff. Um, but these these cards are going to hold up pretty well. It looks like they're, you know, they are very nice. Um, and if you really want to see uh, the cards, uh, there is a video from uh, Joe Knoll, who recorded both the Invisible Sun seminar at Gen Con, as well as a an unboxing video of the Sooth deck itself. Uh, there's a link in the show notes, so you can go and check out his video on this, and you can see what they look like. Um, but yeah, the, the cards themselves are super cool looking. The art is fantastic, which is, you know, no surprise. Uh, everybody, anybody who's familiar with Monty Cook Games knows that the art that they're putting in their stuff is going to be fantastic. So what do you do with this deck? During gameplay... At the table, because there is a function for it uh, when you're doing development mode away from the table, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But at the table, the sooth deck is going to be used to indicate how magic is changing and fluctuating in the actuality. Um, as certain events occur, you're going the the GM is going to be flipping cards onto their path of suns, so onto the the big map that all the different suns and how they're connected to it you you've probably seen the image on t-shirts and on the path of suns website these cards are going to be placed on the suns in order uh, and eventually in the testament of suns itself and they are going to indicate how magic is changing uh, because of these different events that occur within the game um, so each card well most of the cards have the names of various suns on them. Uh, So right now I'm looking at Incriminating Skull, which has uh, gold and silver on it. And gold is printed in white while silver is printed in gray. And what that means is when this card is the active sooth card, uh, magic that is associated with the gold sun, um, and I can't remember what the gold sun is off the top of my head, Um, But magic that's associated with the gold sun is going to be uh, more powerful or cheaper to cast. While magic that's associated with the silver sun, which is creation and, well, makers are big fans of it. uh, That magic is going to be less powerful and uh, diminished in other ways. Uh, It'll be more expensive for people to use it. These cards are going to come up with, you know, some frequency. Uh, So I think you can expect this sort of magic to change frequently enough during the game that, you know, having this deck, you're going to go through a whole bunch of stuff uh, as you're playing.
1: And you can kind of meter how quickly you want things to change based on how often you're dealing out new cards. There's Mm -hmm. some general guidelines in the game about when you should change to the next sun and, and pull another card from the sooth deck. But to some extent, depending on how you're pacing your own game, you can proceed more slowly or more quickly through these uh penalties and advantages in the sooth deck i know in in my games we usually run for two and a half hours or so and we'll regularly get through five or six pulls of the sooth deck
0: hey guess what we can actually say when the what the guidelines are for flipping those cards over
1: oh because they're in this yes
0: yeah it's in the rules well okay so the sooth deck also comes with an instruction manual of sorts um and it says, hey, it's, they, these are going to be played at the GM's discretion, but uh, here's when you should usually trigger a card to flip over. When the characters move to a new location, when a significant event occurs, when a significant new NPC enters the scene... When a PC suffers a wound or anguish, when something surprising happens, when a GM shift is introduced, or when a flux occurs. So there's a there are a few terms on here that probably don't make much sense right now, but um, you know, all of this stuff together means you can f- you could easily follow those guidelines and flip over sooth cards with a pretty rapid frequency. So the uh, I gotta stop handling these cards. I'm bouncing them off my desk. So you're. <laughs> Troy, Troy's going to tell me that uh, he hears me tapping my desk again. So, sorry, Troy. But the, uh, the cards. All right. Um, the cards are uh, categorized into four families. And those families are associated with the hearts that player characters are going to have. So, if you remember from our sentence one of the options that you're going to be choosing is what your heart is and your heart is going to be stoic ardent empath or gallant and each of the families is tied to one of those so mysteries are for stoics notions are for ardents visions are for empaths and secrets secrets are for gallants and this gives you an additional bonus or i think it is just a benefit that you would get when one of the cards in your family is flipped over, uh, so if you are a Stoic and we flip over a card that is from the Mysteries family, it's going to be extra beneficial for you. So your magic magic is going to be uh, much easier to cast uh, on the sun that's affected. Uh, however, there are uh, two cards in each family: the Apprentice and the Nemesis, that will not benefit not benefit you. They're going to be problematic for you in Uh, significant ways, and I believe it's even laid out on the instructions again. Oh man, we can actually talk about how things actually work.
1: It's liberating.
0: Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, so, yeah, with the Nemesis and the Apprentice, those things are are bad for you if you are linked to that family. And technically, how it's bad for you isn't terribly important. It's just that normally you want to see Cards from your family get flipped up because that means things you try to do are going to be much easier. But with the Apprentice and the Nemesis, it's going to be more difficult. Uh, So one of the things that uh, Monty Cook was shooting for was making magic unpredictable and dynamic. And the Sooth deck is one of the things that he is putting in place to encourage that sort of feel. Uh, So as the Sooth cards are flipped over magic from the various families functions differently. They get The, the magic gets powered up, it gets diminished, um, and it will also hopefully encourage players to vary the magic that they're going to be using. So if you have somebody who's relying on uh, magic from the Red Sun quite a bit, and then all of a sudden magic from the Red Sun becomes much weaker and much harder to cast, that might, you know, push them to you know, branch out and look for other spells in their repertoire that they may not have thought about using before, but hey, now red magic is, is just too expensive to use at this point. And that would be really interesting to see because, hey, uh, magic missile is a great spell and why would you cast anything else? Well, what if magic missile cost you two spell slots instead of just one?
1: Yeah, so I guess you know the concern is to take an extreme example. Uh, the, the the reputation of say fourth edition Dungeons and Dragons was that the economy of action was so regimented and strict that encounters started to feel the same because for each character they would say, okay, I'm beginning the encounter. Do I have you know I might save my daily power I can use once per day, but the the powers I can use once per encounter, I'm gonna use that first round. My other encounter power, I'm going to use the second round. And then I start moving to my at-will powers that I can use any time, as many times as I want, only after I've exhausted all of the encounter level powers. And so there was a sameness to the sequence of events uh, because of the the, the timing of, of resetting encounter powers versus having access to at-will powers. To avoid that sort of regimentation so that Invisible Sun characters don't go to every encounter saying, well, I usually start every combat, for instance, with this spell and then spell two and then spell three, you have to look at the Sooth deck to decide, okay, well, which spell really works best now if the vicissitudes of magic are making a particular uh, sun more powerful, less powerful, more costly or less costly? Uh, It it just creates that variability that will hopefully break through the cycle of... First round, I always do this, and second round, mm-hmm. I always do that.
0: Yeah, uh, that would be really cool to see if that does happen. So the other thing that you can do with this Sooth deck is during development mode, you're going to be encouraged to figure out how to resolve the situation that the character is working with you on. So development mode generally revolves around... Uh, one of your players wants to do something with their character, and it's a small little thing that they're trying to resolve. And if you need some sort of resolution mechanic, the Sooth deck is here for you because each card is numbered anywhere from zero to nine. Target numbers in this game are zero, zero to nine, one to something.
1: Well, the target numbers can go well. Uh, zeros or yes, because a target of zero means it's automatic. Yeah. So, so the target numbers really go from 1 to like 14? 17. 17, yeah. And, and, and then even possibly beyond that, they say at times. Probably. So, yeah,
0: you can use this as a, a quick little check to see hey, do we want to have this resolved? Do we want to flip a card to get us a random number to, you know, see how things shake out? Um, the other thing that you can use the Sooth deck for is to reference the art and look for inspiration as a GM. So one of the things that we've been talking about with invisible sun is that it seems like the game wants you to react more to what your players are doing and give them situations that are feeding off of their actions more so than, uh, other games that I personally have run in my past, like dungeons and dragons, which says, Hey, plan your stuff out. Here's a dungeon, have them run through it. Um, and uh, improvisation in that game is a a little bit trickier than something like the Cypher System or a system that's similar to that, like uh, Invisible Sun. Uh, And there are other games out there that make uh, improvisation a a bigger focus, but one of the tools that you're going to be able to use with Invisible Sun is the art on these cards, and this is where it really feels like, hey, this is directly inspired by a tarot deck because you're going to be... Looking at the card you flipped over, and if you need just a, a brainstorming idea, you can say, what do I want to do with this sealed door? Mm, well, there's a whole bunch of interesting stuff on here. We've got imagery of, of birds. There's somebody in despair in front there. You know, you could pull that general mood and try and push the scene in that direction. Uh, you can just pull details off of there and use that to help you improvise for the scene to to help your players and move the game forward. Any other comments that we have on the sooth deck at this point?
1: I'm excited about using it uh, in the game. It's going to add kind of a new dimension, uh, and particularly, uh, it'll be interesting to see how players and uh, react to the sooth card imagery to see if that imagery can move and influence encounters uh, so that this doesn't just become a mechanical exercise in the variability of, of spellcasting and magic, but also help inspire uh, elements of of the encounters and to vary the tone of encounters based on the imagery. I mean, I'm just curious to see how all of that works out. So far, it's been uh, very nice in the playtest. Yeah,
0: having the art is going to be a big, big difference. So, with that, we're going to move on to our next
1: segment. We have another visit to the Vislai Tourist Bureau so that we can talk about the MCG Invisible Sun Seminar that occurred at Gen Con this year and other events that provided us some insight into what we can expect over the coming year. So Gen Con 2017 will be remembered as one where Invisible Sun featured rather prominently in what Monty Cook Games was presenting. Uh, There were a series of events and some other information at the booth that I think will be of interest to people who were not uh, fortunate enough to attend this year. Briefly, I can talk about some of the miscellaneous sorts of events. Uh, There was a main seminar for Monaco Games as usual. Uh, That's when they roll out their big announcements and forthcoming products. The big seminar was interesting but focused mostly on Numenera for, because of their forthcoming Kickstarter uh, with some other information about uh, No Thank You Evil and uh, the forthcoming Strange Box and things like that. But there wasn't a lot of information about Invisible Sun because Invisible Sun had its own seminar. And uh, like the uh, organization of the MCG schedule for Gen Con, uh, we, we will defer mostly to the discussion of that seminar uh, in, in just a moment, and we'll discuss that in depth. But the main seminar existed. There's a little art in it, and you can see how Invisible Sun's fitting into the production schedule and the like for MCG. Uh, uh, but uh, the main seminar did not have, uh, is not a primary source of information for us.
0: That main seminar, did, do we have a video recording in that somewhere?
1: It was recorded. I don't know if the recording has been released yet.
0: Okay. We should check around to see if there are other podcasts that have talked about it, because I have a feeling Cypher Speak might have talked about it a little bit, but I don't know off the top of my head.
1: Yeah, the most recent episode didn't talk much about the seminar itself, but again, I I think MCG recorded that themselves and and may intend to release that to their video feed. If we find that uh, before we release this episode, we can include it in the show notes. But I'm not. I'm not positive, and I don't that I've seen it so far.
0: I did listen to Cipher speaks, not latest episode, but there one right after Gen Con, and they they talked about how much fun they had at Gen Con.
1: Yes, and there was an interview that they conducted oh, yeah, at the booth.
0: That's right. I haven't heard that one yet.
1: Sorry, yeah, Troy, but I'm i But I don't. Sorry, Darcy. <laughs> uh, but in addition to the main seminar, there were also two sessions of character creation for Invisible mm-hmm. Sun, and this. Uh, so these were, uh, let's see, uh, Danny Neary and myself ran one of them, and uh, Darcy uh, Ross and Brandon Ordering ran the second.
0: Yours was on Thursday?
1: Yes, yes. Uh, I stepped in to help uh, on Thursday because uh, the, the my originally scheduled event was never listed by Gen Con. And uh, then Darcy and uh, Brandon ran on Sunday at like 3 in the afternoon for the seven people still around Gen Con at 3 in the afternoon on Sunday. Actually, they were both pretty close to full capacity, uh, but uh, it, it was very late in the in the convention. Uh, the seminars uh, ran basically, as you might expect, based upon what we've uh, included as a demonstration of a character creation, except we had like 40 people in each of these rooms. So we broke uh, the groups up into one table for each of the orders uh, and one for the uh, apostates. And rather than individuals recommending components of other people's neighborhoods, uh, whether it's uh, lo- locations, uh, NPCs, or uh, uh, conflicts. Uh, it was entire tables were making suggestions, and then we're you know, choosing between recommended suggestions. But it basically ran in the format of c- the character creation that we demonstrated in a previous uh, episode of the podcast. Uh, but it was, it was fun to see this work with 40 people in a room uh, in an hour, trying to get all of that in for five different characters. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, i was impressed for both of the sessions uh, that uh, people really took to the the tone of uh, the uh, of the game quickly and uh, so uh, some examples i remember include uh, a location of a never filling a, a sentient pothole that was very upset when local officials kept trying to fill it that's pretty good <laughs> that gives you a kind of a surreal uh, tone uh, also a a park where uh every person's uh kind of fears manifest for them and uh it is said though that if you can last long enough in the park that you will experience uh an, a, the truth of whatever you are seeking uh also kind of related to, in the park it was suggested that maybe some of those fears are manifesting and 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 uh, uh, Getting out of the park and becoming a threat to area uh, other uh, locations in the area. So just th- these are kind of fitting of the tone of Invisible Sun. It was nice to see people get to that quickly um, and just enjoy the experience overall.
0: Yeah, I wish I could have uh, done one of those sessions.
1: Yeah, they they uh, MCG did record the Sunday session with Darcy and Brandon. I am not optimistic we'll ever hear that. Not because of some grand conspiracy, but because the f- the geography of the room was not conducive to recording because you had all of these separate tables. Mm -hmm. And it was somewhat chaotic as different people are contributing at different times uh, ideas. Uh, So I just, I don't know that's going to be conducive to the audio format for, for for ever actually being released, but maybe they can, they they have some strategy uh, that I have not thought of uh, and they will surprise us. And if they do, I think it'll be a good listen for everybody. Uh, The last thing I want to talk about before the Invisible Sun seminar itself is that the booth had an actual production mock-up of the black cube. And so you get to see – we got to see more or less the size of the cube, uh, production design on the components. We got to see the stacks of cards. And, oh, there are so many cards. There are
0: a ton of cards. Holy cows.
1: And uh, the books will slide right into the cube. It's uh, uh, – Bear Whiter, I believe, did the actual design Mm -hmm. of the cube and did a great job of how everything fits together seamlessly and to create a beautiful object in and of itself, as well as a storage device for this game that includes all these bits and pieces that we're looking forward to seeing.
0: Yeah, I I got to take a look at it. I took a picture of it, and I don't remember seeing anything that said you couldn't. So that's that's out there. It's It's a cool box, and I, yeah, it's a cool box. I'm looking forward to getting it.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a little hard to even fathom the scale of the box because it's unlike what we're used to with RPG products. But it's it's pretty big, uh, and it, you know it's an impressive display. Yeah, it's it's smaller
0: than I had thought it would be, but it's also got way more stuff in it than I was
1: really thinking about. So I'm I am uh, even more excited for the cube now that I got to see the production copy yeah. uh, at Gen Con. But the big event for Invisible Sun was the dedicated Invisible Sun seminar uh, that was hosted, I believe, on Friday uh, of Gen Con. We'll go into more detail. Uh, a lot of the, the well, the, the seminar itself was recorded by Joe Knoll, who did the recording of the uh, opening of the uh, Sooth deck. So we'll link to, in the show notes to his recording of this seminar. Uh, and that's going to be particularly useful in that most of the seminar and most of the new information for the seminar was the images that they projected throughout. Uh, so you'll want to see a video of this recording uh, if you if you can, uh, because a lot of the information is in the in the video. You can also reference my uh, Twitter feed, uh, uh, Agenseer, A G O N S E E R. I live tweeted the seminar and. Uh, I haven't had a lot of other tweets since then, so you don't have to worry about you know having to dig through tons and tons of tweets. Um, but you'll find I took pictures of just about every new piece of art that they revealed at the seminar and uh, tweeted that as the event was going on, along with some reactions and things like that, answered some questions people had during the seminar uh, uh, to the extent that I could do so. So you can check out the Twitter feed for some of these some of these images if you don't want to look at the the video itself. But a big part of the of the seminar was art. Uh, I would say that was most of the new content. So they wa- walked through a bunch of, of art that had not made it into the Kickstarter updates or the Kickstarter page themselves. Uh, some of this started with with maps. So there was a, a map of the uh, kind of the area of the of Indigo Sun. So you get to see kind of a traditional geo, you know, large geographic map with lots of bl- uh, blank sections. And this is something they've done with Numenera in particular, where they, they get, they're happy to give you a map. And the map might even have locations in it. But several of the locations may just be names. And they'll indicate on the map that the, they never intend to tell you what's at that location. So maybe there'll be a, a a city or a village or I guess in, in in Invisible Sun you might even just think of a of a location like a, uh, the uh the, the temple of the uh, yeah, the purple mirror and that's all that you ever they will ever say about it. They're not going to detail what the temple of the purple mirror is. It's just there on the map so that uh, the, the a GM can fill it in if she chooses. But you never have to worry, if you do your own version of the temple of the of the purple, I don't even remember what I called mirror. it now, the purple mirror, uh, you never have to worry that your uh, game will be kind of contradicted by uh, the canon later. Because they have indicated on the map that this is going to be, this will never be detailed uh, in their official material. So you can go wild.
0: So this isn't something that I think came through on the video. The map that you were shown, it had. did it have little icons that were similar to the Numenera maps?
1: I th- I don't recall if I could read that from the images, but I'm pretty sure they described that in the seminar. Okay, cool. Great. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's correct. We're, we're, we're a few weeks out now. And uh, while well, I have slept since then, mm-hmm. I have not slept enough since then. So uh, <laughs> my memory is not perfectly reliable. But I, I believe they, they did describe that same process as with the Numenera na- maps. And and that they did say they left a lot of sections sort of undescribed uh, for you to fill in with your own material. There's also a map of Saturn to, to zoom in a bit. Uh, this is sort of an urban environment if you want to uh, focus on that setting for an Invisible Sun uh, uh, campaign. Uh, it is a... We, We know from the the study material that it's a a depopulated city following the war. Uh, And so there's massive expanses that are uh, currently unpopulated or or underpopulated and are basically in ruins. Mm -hmm. It's reflected in the map itself.
0: Um, Yeah. So touching on Saturn being an important part of the campaign, I think it's going to be fairly important because it is getting one of its own... It's getting a book totally dedicated to it, I believe. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, it'll be a big part of Invisible Sun.
1: Yeah, and, and one, I hesitate to say disappointment, but I'll just say disappointment, um, was that... Uh, no, no disappointments uh, on this podcast. Well, there, I will confess to a mild source of disappointment and then quickly move on. Uh, this The depopulation of Saturnine is based upon the war. Mm-hmm. And in my play, yeah, you know, th- this is a concept that fascinated me. Like there's this war that happened and uh, uh, it led to this depopulation. It fundamentally altered the actuality, but in particular Saturn and, and the Indigo Sun. And, you know, my mind then boggles about, oh, what, who is the war over and what, are, what, what does the war consist Ooh, of? And how do I, I know where this draw is that into the campaign? Yes. Um, and someone asked a question along these lines and the reply was, we do not talk about the war.
0: Yeah. Isn't it strange that nobody really talks about it?
1: Yeah, yeah, no one talks about the war. I'm not sure if this is the case, but what I took away from that is that the war may be treated like the previous worlds are in Numenera, in that it is a complete open question that they will not answer in canon, so that you could hypothetically do whatever you want in your campaign. Though, even in the case of Numenera, uh, Monty Cook will say, you know they are not going to define what the previous worlds were, and he really recommends... Individual GMs not define what the previous worlds were because that just limits possibilities. Mm -hmm. If you declare on Numenera that the sixth world was uh, all algae tech, whatever, then you have limited your possibilities. Um, You have introduced algae tech, but you didn't have to necessarily say it was an entire world or anything along those lines, but you've reduced the mysteries by one. And I think that's the approach they seem to be taking with the war, is that it's a giant question mark that they do not intend to answer so that you could include it in your games. But that they also recommend you not definitively answer who was the war between, what was it over, uh, and instead just explore the consequences of the war for your games. I was mildly disappointed (laughs) in this. However... Um, In retrospect, afterwards, after I processed that disappointment, I realized if it is much like it is Numenera, I come to agree with that advice. And for Numenera, that, you know, it's better not to foreclose possibilities. Instead, leave it as a question mark that can fuel stories. Uh, And so don't answer, you know, who won or lost the war. But instead, everyone knows there was a war. We see the consequences of the war, and occasionally we can write pieces connecting events in the war to particular stories. But we don't want to close off the mystery that the war currently represents in the narrative. Uh, so, again, I processed and got over that initial disappointment. Okay, you can
0: stay on the show because
1: <laughs> I was hoping for an answer.
0: Yeah, you can stay on the show. Then uh, we can't be disappointed in okay. anything, um, which is which is not true. We were. I've been disappointed in a couple of things. Like, right now, the only thing I can think of that I'm disappointed by is the green sun. The green sun seems too too in line with what you'd expect.
1: Well, I will take it as my mission over time then to persuade you that the green sun will be cool.
0: Well, I'm sure it'll be just fine. But, yeah, I I also wanted to say that uh, in Numenera, we never really got terribly interested in figuring out what any of the previous worlds were like. We just wanted to use their cool tech.
1: But, But there were people who, like you know, begged for a a Numenera supplement called like the previous worlds Mm -hmm. where it would say definitively the first world was X and the second world was Y. And uh, they said very quickly, that's not going to happen. We're not going to release such material. We want to leave that open. And we recommend that individual game masters leave that open because that helps fuel the mystery of Numenera. I suspect they will treat the war the same way, given how they talked about it. Then again, we'll see.
0: Um, So one of those consequences from the war is Saturn was 10 to 15 million people in population prior to the war. And now post-war, where we're going to be picking up in our campaigns, it is about 1 million people.
1: So you can imagine how depopulated particular neighborhoods are and how neighborhoods are having to put themselves back together again as they lost 90% of their population, Mm -hmm. 90 plus percent of their population. Yeah. Uh, there were other interesting uh, pieces of art that indicated piece, parts of the setting that we're still learning about and having to kind of interpret uh, the implications. Uh, for instance, there was a, a, a wonderful piece of art for something called the Undersling, mm-hmm. which is a place underneath that, uh that is a, a kind of series of buildings that are held aloft inside a massive cave, underground, under Saturine. And this particular location is tied closely to the red sun, which introduces kind of an an important and fun characteristic that these suns will be connected in ways that are, are not limited exclusively by the path of suns. So the red sun is not directly connected to the indigo sun on the path of suns. But clearly, there are areas of the indigo sun that are more closely associated with the red sun, where there's some sort of affinity, and where the the influence and power of the red sun can more easily cross over into Indigo. We can imagine similar uh, areas for the pale sun uh, or, or, the, or the green sun or things like that. And uh, that opens up interesting thematic possibilities for Saturn and for, the, for all of the suns.
0: Yeah, the Undersling looked really neat. I was a big fan of the idea of there being basically another city hanging below Saturn over, I think they said like a giant fall. Like a waterfall, I believe it was. Uh, but yeah, that art. Was uh, really I don't cool. recall that. Uh, yeah, take a look at the art. There are people in boats on it. Um, but
1: oh, I believed you. I just
0: yeah. Um, so yeah, the undersling. It it looks like it's you know kind of another district in Saturn, and they talked about uh, there was another district which was. Uh, the buildings were giant origami buildings and there was a statue that moves around there that people were using as mass transit which was kind of nifty
1: yeah and so it it suggests how robust and varied Saturnine will be it's not going to be a samish sort of location where you've got your generic tin lo- you know your generic tin shops uh, that came from the book. This is going to be, a, you could have an entire campaign based just in Saturnine and still have a staggering diversity of locations and tones and things like mm-hmm. that. But it wasn't just Saturnine that they described. They had some other images of Saturnine, but they also talked about some other suns uh, and some of the nature of those suns. And here again, we see references to a bit of the, of the setting uh, without much detail. Uh, there was an image, for instance, of a city in the Pale that is under the pale sun that after the war is now the largest city in the actuality.
0: yeah so the war was focused mostly on indigo and Saturn it seems.
1: Yes, uh, but the result of all of these people dying in the war was that the largest city is now, the place where all the dead spirits go. <laughs> uh,
0: I didn't really think about it in that sense, but yeah that that uh, that makes a lot of sense then. I was thinking that that city existed you know before the war and now that Saturn is so devastated, it's been depopulated, and this city in the pale is now the biggest one because it's been untouched. But yeah, you're right. I guess all those people would have made their way to that city because now they are spirits.
1: And so it, it creates an interesting tension where uh, of whether there's an imbalance in the actuality. It, it is supposed to be the case that the indigo sun is the place where most souls are, uh, but. Now, with the sh- massive shift in population from the indigo sun over to the pale sun, what pressures does that create on the pale sun just as the depopulation creates uh, problems for the indigo sun? And uh, you know, dealing with a population explosion in the pale sun might be uh, an interesting uh, campaign seed. And again, this is an example where they don't have to actually describe what the war was. No one has to talk about the war. However, you can deal with the consequences of the war, uh, by uh, indirectly by looking at the consequences in the overpopulation of the of the city in the in the pale,
0: yeah, that's a that's going to be an interesting one to tackle.
1: There were references to NPC races uh, and just like, hints uh, that were intriguing. Uh, they talked about the Elderbrin we've mentioned before as one of the other the non-human native races mm-hmm. of the actuality. Uh, they can appear as anything, but very specifically, they they never appear as human.
0: Now Elderbrin. They're playable characters, aren't they? They can be?
1: I don't think so, because I believe they cannot
0: be Visley. They can't be Visley, but I could have sworn in one of the Kickstarter updates that Elderbrins were playable.
1: I'm not sure, so I'm... I'm, I'm just not sure. I I'll have to look it up. We'll have to leave this for future discussion. Yeah. Yep. I'm sure there'll be time for a segment on Elderbren when we have more than four sentences to talk yes. about. But And now we've gone from four sentences to five sentences that may add more questions than it does answers. Oh,
0: well, we've got like six sentences. They like to hang out in the gold sun and they never appear as human. Yeah. I guess that's a good. Sentence, but... So
1: the, the, that answers several questions, but it may raise mm-hmm. other questions. Uh, and, and you know, general NPC races were not the only things uh, presented. We also have specific people, including three brothers known as the, the Whelm.
0: Yeah, Shauna um, talks about one of them in her Invisible Sun post uh, that she put up on MCG's website. Um, she was trying to woo one of them, I think, is what was happening. Oh, no, she was trying to throw a party in his honor in order to get a favor from him, I think. But whatever. That sounds right. I mean, it was there was some party that he was going, like he had to attend that they threw, uh, and he represents storms, and it's a pretty interesting concept. I, I was a big fan of reading that.
1: Yeah, and there's and there's art from several NPCs that may show up in the core books, but seem to be most closely used and likely elaborated upon within the directed campaign. Mm-hmm. So there's a an NPC called King Nine. That will be drawn into the, the directed campaign, as well as the dark-eyed Mandrake, that may serve as a rival to the NPCs uh, through the directed campaign. Uh, and there, this, to, to emphasize some of what has come up in previous discussions, you know, the, the directed campaign is not going to be uh, a map with a hundred keyed rooms. And each key, you know, each key to the room says, "In this room, there's going to be an orc," and they have this pie and the stereotypical uh, sort of encounter-based dungeon design. The, the directed campaign is likely to be just a host of NPCs uh, and uh, locations and items, and uh, kind of a toy box of different material that GMs can draw from for their campaigns. And so we see in this art some of this toy box being revealed for the directed campaign with uh, these NPCs. And and I'm kind of looking forward to seeing how that will work Mm -hmm. out when it's not going to be kind of a scripted campaign in a traditional sense where you got to make sure you, you get up to level 20 in time to fight Orcus. Instead, it's going to be you know here's three NPCs. Pick the one you are that you know your character your PCs will find most interesting, and have them interact with them. And your group may interact with them in a very different way. They may be a a, a rival to some PC groups, and they may be a sponsor for other groups. Uh, And so it's going to be interesting to see how that improvisational quality to the game is reflected in the directed campaign design as well.
0: Yeah, and I think the other interesting point that we talked with Monty about was the resources that they're gonna be giving us, the GMs is who I'm referring to, uh, the resources that we're gonna be getting as GMs are going to be tools that we'll be able to rely upon. So NPCs and locations that we can use to help us uh, react to what the players are gonna be doing. So it's, it's not even so much like who is the one person that they're going to interact with, it's more what are the players doing and oh, I can grab this NPC. And use them in this situation, which, you know, I'm I'm looking forward to that so that I don't have to come up with a dumb NPC that has some weird character trait. I'm going to actually have somebody with some history and some motivation instead of just messing with and a characters. name and a name. Yeah, that's right. Names. Oh, I just listened to our uh, character creation episode and we sound like we're really good <laughs> with names.
1: <laughs> there, there was some editorial magic there, to be sure. Yeah,
0: but then we talked about it.
1: Uh, and then, so there wasn't a lot of other, there was certainly not a lot of discussion at the seminar of mechanics or the systems of Invisible Sun. So there's not much to reveal there. There was a little bit more detail on character arcs. Much of this was either directly uh, stated in previous discussion of character arcs or was reasonably inferred from what one could read in about character arcs. Mm-hmm. But it was certainly something that a lot of people had questions about. Uh, so they did confirm, for instance, that you know you, you're, you, you progress as a, in your character arcs uh, a, in order to gain acumen, which you could then use to, to buy skills and spells. Uh, also, you, you can have multiple character arcs simultaneously, and I think they actually anticipate you will in most campaigns, have multiple character arcs uh, simultaneously. And you'll be kind of starting them and uh, completing them asynchronously, different characters in the party will be starting and completing character arcs at different rates uh, because they are the, an engine that you use to generate acumen. Uh, They also uh, clarify that the end of each of these arcs will be a place where you, you're likely to get joy or despair, depending on, depending on how the character arc plays out. Uh, And to emphasize something we've mentioned before, then uh, there's, this actually creates an interesting incentive in the game that I don't see present in a lot of other systems. There's actually an incentive for players to want to fail. That is to say, they want to tell a story in which their character does not necessarily get everything she or he wants, mm-hmm. and that their character arc may not resolve in the in an ideal fashion, because they'll want some of the character arcs to generate despair so, to help fuel their character advancement, particularly of their forte and their order. So you may start character arcs thinking you're going to generate despair.
0: Yeah, and that uh, that feels a little bit different than other games. So in Apocalypse World, specifically Dungeon World, uh, when you roll a six minus, you get experience an experience point for it, and it feels kind of like a consolation prize. Uh, it feels like something to soften the blow of failing. Whereas in here, yeah, you want to set up a story where you have things that go wrong for you so that you can get that despair, rather than. Whoa, that didn't that didn't turn out how you wanted it to. Here's here's an XP as a bonus.
1: Yeah, as opposed to just uh, making a failure less costly or less annoying for the player, this actually incentivizes the players to seek failure occasionally mm. and help sh- use failure to shape their story. Which I'm really interested to see how that plays out in my playtest. This is something the players are aware of. But uh, they still don't seem to recommend failure very often. Mm -hmm. It's more likely when I'll say, you know, this goes a a particular direction. You could generate a despair rather than a joy. Uh, They are more likely to take it than they would otherwise. Mm -hmm. But I'm still not seeing a lot of improvised – uh, uh you know uh, story from the players that leads directly to generating despair. So this is something I think that players are going to have to get used to because we're so accustomed to wanting to roll high all of the time because all of the character growth is based upon your successes and the more the less you fail the more you succeed. That's not how that works in this game. Uh, In order to advance, you need to balance your successes and your failures. Uh, And you have the agency and the control uh, to shape your story so that you can kind of choose your successes and your failures, uh, which I think will lead to more satisfying stories in the end. But it's going to take a little getting used to, especially uh, those of us who've been doing this for so long in a world in which you get experience from gold and killing monsters. Mm-hmm. And the idea of getting experience points or the equivalent of advancement you know, credit uh, for failure and the idea of recommending that your character does not succeed is pretty foreign.
0: Yeah, it's, I, I remember talking with uh, some players a while back. And one of the things that we were looking for in role-playing games when we were getting back into them was, I want a game that's going to make me feel like a a superhero. I want to feel awesome. I want to do cool things. And we didn't want a game that would encourage us to fail. Uh, We we wanted failure to be something we were trying to avoid and we were fighting against it. Uh, So, yeah, this, this idea is going to be interesting. And I think... At our table, uh, there are a few of us who are accustomed to, you know, making failure interesting and entertaining, and I think that's going to translate pretty well to Invisible Sun.
1: And so you can you hear in this this review, there was a lot of information about Invisible Sun at the uh, at Gen Con 2017, lots of art to look at. Uh, we, we got to see... <laughs> The uh, black cube, and more than anything else, it just the game itself feels more real. In that we could see progress being made in the production side. We can see the physical presence of the the game. The seminars happened, uh, and it just renewed my excitement for the game itself. This ends our walk. Maybe you discovered something today. Maybe you need to look closer. The music was titled Beyond from Wes Otis and Plate Mail Games. It is available from Drive RPG. Invisible Sun is currently available for pre-order at invisiblesunrpg.com. For a limited time, you'll receive an additional Sooth deck when you pre-order the game. You can find our blog at incantationspodcast.blogspot.com or email us at incantationspodcast at gmail.com. You can find me at Eganseer, A-G-O-N-S-E-E-R, on Twitter.
0: And you can find me at Tex underscore Red on Twitter. Do us a favor. Leave us a rating uh, and a review on iTunes. Uh, It really helps people find out about our show. Another great way is to just uh, tell a friend. uh, Tell a friend about Incantations. Tell them about Invisible Sun. And that would really help us out a lot.